creeds and criticism meet. of Reference Podcast. Welcome to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm Allison. And I'm Nick. And now it's time for the first podcast of the year. Yay! And Yay. the roadmap for today is we've got our New Year's goals and lessons. And we're talking specifically today about women and Paul, primarily but not exclusively in Romans 16. Then we'll follow that up with an open discussion and then we'll uh, close out. So, New Year's lessons and goals. Mine is to... Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's hold on a second here. Oh. Yes. So, what do we mean by lessons and goals? What do we mean by lessons and goals? Wow, that was like the perfect setup. Here you go, Allison. There you go. There you go. Let's hear some of your wisdom. (laughs) Please. That's terrible. Now I feel embarrassed. I know. Lead us. Well, thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, We're actually going to be talking about, since it's the, instead of just doing New Year's resolutions, we're going to do maybe some spiritual formation resolutions. Are we now? Okay. Yes. And so, I mean, I just want to stop by saying, I think oftentimes spiritual formation gets put into the category of this like wishy-washy pie-in-the-sky feeling oriented thing. And that's completely disjointed from all your Bible study, all your exegetical work. Discipleship, period. Your life, who you are. It's really more in terms of who you are, your calling, what you fight for in life what you exist for, Hmm. kind of, I think it'll look different for different people in different circumstances. And I think this is something that's kind of separate from this weird thing you hear in church where it's just kind of like, let's everyone go around the circle and express your feelings about this or that. It involves a whole person. Gotcha. Mind, feelings, everything. Okay. Character. Yeah, that's that's a big deal. So, lessons. What is something we learned? Or you learned, at least. Or I could go. Okay. Uh, I learned specifically that uh, throughout the year, it's been a struggle, you know, with seminary and graduating and stuff like that, and working a pretty difficult job and a long commute and stuff like that. Uh, Learned that prayer actually does something. Uh, Yes. Praying on the road, you know, you have an hour drive home, or hour drive to work, then a two to three hour drive home. Uh, you have a lot of time on your hands if you're not listening to podcasts or music, and it's it was a great chance just to talk with God. I don't normally do that, and giving uh, God some of my time per day and more and more each time was just kind of a, something I've noticed, that I, I felt better about work, I felt better about what I was learning. Uh, I wouldn't have probably gotten A in Mary and Mike Thompson's class if I hadn't been praying, ceasingly, unceasingly, I should say. And so just that whole essence of Prayer actually being a contributor to discipleship and personal growth and stuff like that was a big deal for me. Something I learned. Yeah, and oftentimes these are things you kind of know already, but um, when you actually put them into practice, there's kind of a deepening within your mind and in your heart. It's like doing push-ups. I know I have muscles, but once I actually start (laughs) doing push-ups, I I realize, oh, well, there's something more to this, and it's healthy, and it's good, and it's Yeah, it's not just like content. I learned content. Prayer actually works. It's more oh no, I had to be in this horrible situation and prayer did do something. Yep. 
And so now me as a person, I, I grow and in turn help others grow. Yeah. So what did you learn? Uh, no, 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 no. Before that, what oh, are no. your future formative goals for this year? This well, new year? I just sent off, unironically enough, two different proposals for uh, doctoral work. One to someone who's in Australia and one to someone who's in Scotland. And so I'm looking to see what God's going to do with that. Uh, How's that a formative goal? Uh, it's a formative goal because that will change in basically. Terms of character formation. Well, it means I'll be studying Paul in a very specific way with application to principalities and powers and how that affects our current world with political powers being on the news every day and also the issue of existential uh, crises in Paul's churches and stuff, which is an application yeah, for the church. Yeah, but how does that have, how, how will that help you personally grow as a human being? As a Christian, you mean? As a Christian made in the image of Christ, resembling more... It's a call to participate in the history of what Christ has done for his body, the church, and a call to live a life that imitates Christ, and a call that pledges, in essence, allegiance to Christ and to no other. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. So in your everyday life, you are going to think of God as more the Lord of your life. Lord of my life, but also... Uh, a being of personal care who cares about mm. uh, his people. Uh, and, and you the, specifically. Specifically, but also the whole world. It gives me a great sense of God as as love, but God as as warrior for those who are oppressed and mm. under the power of, of Satan, the devil. Well, Satan and the devil are the same thing, but the principalities and the powers of the world and how uh, God does not forget the individual person. Uh, even though we are the body of Christ. And so it's, it, it personalizes God to an extent where God has not left his people to be under oppression and, and violence. And there's an apocalyptic day of reckoning that God will remember such things. And and you felt more distant before. Yeah, it's... it's uh, more in, separated on a personal level well, in terms it's, of her life. Yeah, it's kind of this... It's, unironically, it's kind of what Ephesians 2 talks about. You were who were once far away but have been brought near by the mm. power of Christ and, and or God in Christ, I should say. And the sense in which the alienation of, of humanity has been bridged in the Christ events and mm. how you participate in your life is hidden with Christ. You'll rise with Christ and have indeed risen with Christ and been baptized into Christ. And prayer is a way of kind of locking that all together. It calls all of us, and specifically me in my case, to a greater respect for uh, tradition and participation in what God has done. What about for you? Well, this has been an interesting one. And uh, honestly, it, uh, this is one reason we haven't um, put out so many uh, podcasts. I hate to say it. Mm -hmm. I have certainly been in a period of what I'm going to call testing. Hmm. I'll say this very clearly. I don't believe God always puts us in abusive situations so that he can test us or anything weird like that, or God just wanted this thing to happen to you. I mm -hmm. think that's messed up theology. Yeah. The thing is though, sometimes he does that. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he did that with me. Um, I think God specifically put me in a very abusive situation, which I won't get into too many details on. Mm -hmm. And not physically abusive. Well, it took a huge physical toll on my body. Okay, that, yeah. you're not re in referring to me or I'm not like in that. Okay, oh good. All right, good. Yeah, Nick Nick is not Okay, good. All right. Beating me behind. <laughs> no. That's terrible. Just making sure. <laughs> yeah, and I'm passive aggressively <laughs> announcing it on I'm like, Oh, I don't know who she's talking about. Why is she looking at me like that? See That's these weird. little marks? They're not from jujitsu. <laughs> oh gosh. That's terrible. They okay. actually probably are. Um <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> let me just put it this way. I think God put me in a specific situation to do some concrete good. Hmm. Um, and I think that because um, when he does that, he'll send me actual signs. And usually he prepares me <laughs> for it beforehand. And I won't get to details. But yes, he did that. Um, and I also think he wanted to let me see how far I had come. I would say that my growth has been very psychosomatic. I basically encountered thematically some suffering that I encountered in the darkest days of my childhood, hmm. uh, where I did have extended physical abuse um, and emotional abuse and, you know, a variety of very bizarre things that happened to me. Yeah. And all the themes were there, but I had absolutely no triggers from those things did mm. not return to PTSD, which I, I fought for a good portion of my time. Mm. I did, however, have a group of individuals that thought that yes, Allison needs to definitely be put in her place. We need to definitely attack her character. We need to definitely attack her uh, level of competency, everything about her. And we need to smash her down as soon as possible. There was a group. It was almost fair. It was four against one. It was almost <laughs> fair for them. <laughs> but uh, that's, I think, a Shapiro thing. Yep. But what I realized, though, encountering all of that, and I did, and I do have some pre-PTSD, um, but it's more from extended nine months of having horrible things happening over and over again and anticipating, nothing to do with um, background. <laughs> Um, and it's not very entrenched, so I think it'll go away. But I think what I realized, and this was part of even my real my understanding of Romans 5, and even the Telos in 1 Timothy. So God had already been having me work on this way hmm. ahead of time um, before I even encountered this. And I realized, even before I consciously connected it to these passages, that God had been telling me during some of the more difficult moments that he was reminding me of my own value in him. Hmm. The things that he taught me uh, way back in my childhood um, that really helped me in that dark time hmm. where he gave me a strong conviction of who I was in him, that I was dearly loved by him and that he loved the other people, even the people that would hurt me. Hmm. And he reminded me of that during some of the more hurtful times where I didn't know what was happening behind the scenes at the moment, hmm. but I did get confirmation, clear confirmation that some people were saying some really terrible things about me and were trying to hurt me at that exact moment. And the Holy Spirit had whispered into my heart that he he loved me dearly and that he had kindled within me a love for other people, the people that hurt me, and that that was ultimately all he cared about and all that mattered to him. And I, I realized coming out of this um, months and months later, and I'm not completely out of the woods yet. Uh, there's a mob mentality I'm dealing with now where uh, we won't get into that. But <laughs> yeah. basically I've realized that it's kind of the seed of the gospel has grown into a tree and um, my resilience has been very much tied to God's work in my life. I knew what these people were doing, and I knew the inner workings and the dynamics of it because I study power dynamics mm -hmm. uh, and have experienced it on a very, uh, I'd say, uh, core level in terms of having had child abuse and also being a woman uh, that people always think is a threat and shouldn't be so confident or assertive or this or that. But I realized I just had no desire for vengeance, or I, I wanted the good of the people that were continually hurting me. And I see that as the work of God in my life. And I definitely protected myself. I don't believe in 
excusing evil or pretending it's tame. But at the same time, um, and I resisted their attempts to warp my identity as well. I would say my goal for this year now, given that backdrop, is just learning to navigate not being afraid now that I have a healthy mind that's not prone to anxiety and being able to move forward without fear when I know God has placed me in a certain circumstance because he will provide. It's a good word. And we can end the podcast right there. Goodbye, yep. guys. Bye, right. guys. So on to the, the meat of the course. Oh. We have a discussion on women and Paul specifically, but not exclusively, uh, the women mentioned in Romans 16. And you'll see there's a lot of crossover with other women uh, in Paul, which is going to come up here, which is really fun. And so... He has a lot of greetings and hellos to make. Yes. Uh, and so Romans 16 is the frame, but we can go beyond the frame when necessary because there's other words or people mentioned that need to be mentioned and uh, fully uh, exegeted here. Meaning we're going to cover a lot of the women mentioned in Romans 16, but we're going to also go off on... Eh, little tangents into other women in the Pauline Exercise, yeah. yeah. All right, and so Allison will begin with uh, Phoebe, my girl Phoebe, in Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. So take us away. Yeah, and I, I wanted to say um, some initial thoughts, too, on this setup. Uh, I want you to notice, especially as we go through these names, that there's a diffusion of power happening here in mm. this long reading. You'll notice that the leaders in this church are not just men. Yep. They are women and slaves. Yep. <laughs> and these aren't just heads of households that are being mentioned, male or female heads of households mentioned in this long section. Uh, he goes ahead and, and mentions all sorts of people. Yeah. Lots of hellos, like I said. Yes. And again, the function of these greetings is not uh, just kind of a quick hello. In an ancient letter, oftentimes these are actually at the end as yeah. well. But they're actually supposed to, uh, this kind of greeting is supposed to establish uh, familial bonds. Hmm. And here he is um, matching it with uh, churches and individuals that they would have otherwise maybe not seen as part of a familial bond. And this can occur because they are all in Christ. And so in a normal context, you might even have uh, maybe, especially with the Holy Kiss, maybe you would have um, men, uh, two men that are trying to stabilize their social bonds by uh, commending each other. Mm -hmm. And so there's some status attached to that where there's a mutual exchange of status and yeah. uplifting. And here, that same kind of status of uplifting and amassing uh, mutual bonds is expanded. So the peers and leaders, fellow leaders and peers, are not just men to men, but men and women Slaves and people that are uh, maybe free, maybe they have status, maybe they have wealth. They're yeah. all on equal playing field on some fundamental familial level. And so I think the question we can ask ourselves as we look through this section is, do we recognize the women in our congregations for who they are in Christ? Uh, do we see peers and leaders or do we just see liabilities, sexual objects, and subordinates? Mm. And I think that's very important to consider. So going first into... Phoebe, we'll go ahead and read uh, 16, 1 and 2, Romans. Which translation are you using? Uh, which translation am I using? Okay, C-E-B today. Common English Bible, okay. Hooray. <laughs> Some, I, I actually like to use the NASB quite a bit, and I was trying earlier in the series to use ESB, but they kept messing it up. Yeah. So, oh well. Uh, so 16, 1 and 2. I'm introducing our sister Phoebe to you, who is a servant of the church in Cancrea, 
Welcome her in the Lord in a way that is worthy of God's people, and give her whatever she needs from you, because she herself has been a sponsor of many people, myself included. Ooh, Hmm. so they decided on sponsor. Yep. Interesting already. All right, so uh, Phoebe is probably a Gentile. Uh, She's thought to be a freed slave who now has come into high social status and wealth. Um, But interestingly, she's introduced as our sister, so there's that equalizing phrase that's consistent with how Paul sees... Um, our relationships within the household of God. And he, I think he puts this in here because of the high common, uh, commendation that he's going to give now. Hmm. And this is what I was telling you before about oftentimes these are men of status that are exchanging and trying to amass more status. Well, he's, he, he brought her to an equal playing field, as you'll see uh, how this whole section functions in terms of naming all sorts of people, hmm. even though she's, he's going to talk her up. Quite a bit. Quite, yeah. First, he introduces her as diakonos. Now, this is not deaconess. This is deacon. And so this is a masculine form. I'd say in the more early period, there was only one term. You don't see that separation. In the other three occurrences in Romans, so there's two in 13.4 and 15.8, this refers to a leader in the church. So depending on what church context you have as well. You may have a different perception of what a deacon usually is. You may think that they're just, I don't know, handing out communion, ironing cloths. Serving tea and crumpets, maybe. Yeah, you may instead see an assistant pastor role Hmm. if you're maybe in a more high church context. This is a little different than maybe even both of these. Uh, The function is preaching and teaching, and we'll see there's a lot more involved later. In this context, Phoebe is being a a deacon of a specific church. So it's not just a standalone. Many think that this is an office being referred to, not just a random gifting. Cranfield says this is possibly describing the deacon Hmm. of a church, the leader of a church. Hmm. And there's further reason to think this, because what comes later is another term, prostatus, which is always translated as leader. Except for here, randomly, hmm. which is very interesting. So to give an example that you can kind of look up, uh, compare how leader or prostatus is translated uh, in this place versus how it is even just earlier in the same book in 12.8 by various translations. Hmm. Keep in mind that LSJ lexicon says this is leader, chief, presiding officer. This is the this is what this term means. But instead, you see kind of an interesting little um, discrepancy here. So I'll I'll go through three translations. Okay. So in the NASB, for instance, Romans twelve. Here's an example of the word: He who leads with diligence. But then go to Romans eight sixteen. Same term. She has been a helper of many. Hmm. Interesting train. You know, change right there. All right. Yeah. ESV. Is actually a little bit better this time. Um, the one who leads with zeal. Hmm. Chapter 12. Now chapter 16. For she has been a patron of many. Patron's a bit better. Yeah, patron's pretty better close. Better than helper. Um, and then NIV, chapter 12. You get lead. But then chapter 16, benefactor. And so, again, one of those curious things where... For some reason, we just have to change the rules a bit when it comes to women. (laughs) And, yeah, it's not done that way in any other place, but for some reason, they're going to do it here. Yeah. But, no, that term means leader. And further, this is a leader who is over even Paul. 
So that's that's curious, and you can see why maybe they didn't like that so much. So at one point, this woman was a presiding officer of a church, perhaps maybe in some of our worlds, the pastor of the church, and maybe Paul came over under her authority at some point. So further, this is a letter carrier of Paul's most theologically comprehensive epistle. And you can kind of see Payne has a very good discussion on this in his book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, page 62 to 63. Now, a letter carrier, this isn't just a little delivery man service. <laughs> uh, these, in the ancient world, this is a very high position and someone who's oftentimes vetted, considered the most trustworthy. And you even have Paul here saying that this person's very worthy. And it's a function of interpreter, as well. And mm. so this isn't just someone who's going to come, read the letter, and leave. This is someone that's entrusted with with Paul's directive and is going to explain Romans to them. Well, they're also told to favorably receive her. And so that includes, you know, tending to her. You know, it's a long journey, I'm, I'm assuming. It's a rough journey. And it means probably listening to her as well. Well, and providing her with all the tools that she needs. I mean, imagine, imagine this, though. Imagine... Imagine we get her to come to us and explain Romans to us. Well, that that settles so many debates. I know, right? It's like, okay, well, what did Paul mean by this? You know, complicated phrasing. She's like, it's an it's a subjective genitive, guys. Duh. And so I, I just love her to do that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and here's something else to consider too. Uh, Paul uses an honorific term for her, uh, axios, and it's it's interesting too. If I'm if I'm remembering correctly, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong. But in the even in the Eastern Church, that's an expression oftentimes given when someone is ordained as a priest. Hmm. They'll say axios or something of that kind. Uh, it's, again, another uh, term that's used for someone that is suitable of honor or in position as a leader. And so, again, here we have um, another woman that's considered that by Paul and was a leader. Yeah. And <laughs> Plain it's and simple. An, yeah. And it's an interesting deacon. Of the tr of the church or assembly, in Cancrea or or uh, uh, of the one in Cancrea, and it's so it's the relationship is deacon of the church, which it's singular, so it's not as if she, he could have said a deacon, or he could have said something in another, or he could have said actually doulos or some sort of slave language. Yeah. You know, if we wanted this to be servant, which it's not, and so it's minister deacon of this specific church in this specific place. So it's it is so it's the association with a church. Is huge, I think. Yeah. So, I, if I had to get, if I had to put this in maybe a modern term in terms of how what a big deal she is, and what an honor this church is getting by having her come to them, they're not. They're probably thinking in terms of their own status being elevated, in terms of receiving her. Yep. Frankly, um, this is kind of like uh, maybe in terms of status, a mega church pastor uh, coming to a, this little church in the midwest kind of thing like some random little church in the midwest or something like that i don't know yeah and being commended by someone that they highly esteem so yeah this is not some little you know little letter carrier that's coming over yeah she's not going to just drop off the scroll and walk off make sure she has a place to stay you know i mean yes hospitality is huge and that's something they're expected to do mm. but again this person is a person with means of her own and probably doesn't need their hospitality per se but is there on their behalf. Yeah, and it also illustrates Paul, Paul's own relationship with she was a prostatus of many people and of me also. And so there's this relationship that's kind of this equivalent relationship where he's basically saying, if you're going to treat me a nice way, you know, I'm the apostle of the Gentiles, I'm the apostle kind of thing. 
you got to kind of treat her in the same way. And so there's an equivalency of, of, of reception of her as well, which I think is really interesting that you get throughout the passage, of course, but the mutuality here is really interesting. Yeah. And uh, let, let's go ahead and go to the next one. Right. We have so many to do here. Yeah. Um, there's a lot. Uh, lots of greetings. So next is Priscilla, and she's also known as Prisca. Yep. Three and four. Say hello to Prisca and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their own necks for my life. I'm not the only one who thanks God for them, but all the churches of the Gentiles do the same. You can find lots of references to these people. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, 19, as well, Acts 18, 26. Again, we see another female leader here. Uh, this is the same Priscilla that w went and taught Apollos with her husband. Yep. And again, she's named first. That's very interesting, yeah. beyond interesting in the ancient world. It's not customary for a woman to be named first in Greek or Jewish contexts. Hmm. They're just not. And yet Priscilla is always named first in matters of ministry when the two are named together. Yeah, specifically here, my co-workers. And yes. So there's a, a triage of Paul, Aquila, and Prisca working here in Christ Jesus or by or with Christ Jesus. And so it's not as if Pris Prisk is kind of the tag along. It's no, she's the triada here. She's amongst the three, the two, the three. So yeah, and again, it doesn't seem that female leaders are that rare within the early church. Hmm. Uh, we have even in Acts seventeen four and I think twelve, women are being named as. I think not a few women is the phrasing. Is the Lucan way of saying there's plenty of women? Not a few women is. And they're basically. functioning as pillars of the church. Yeah. And again, these aren't women in the background. Yeah. This is not what's meant here. This is how our minds kind of flip things so that it makes more sense if we are in a patriarchal context, but it's not. So mm -hmm. in terms of uh, Priscilla, and especially in relation to Aquila, um, the church, he references the church that meets in their house. In verse 5, yeah. Yeah, and again, you'll remember, uh, this is, yeah, so you'll remember too that at this period, this is where a lot of churches, this is where the assembly meets. Um, the term that's used is ecclesia. So that's assembly or congregation. These are actually church leaders. They've probably been presided over the Eucharist at times. Um, hmm. Same with perhaps Phoebe earlier. And something else to note as well, again, I'm going to go back to this. And as if you want to read through this whole thing, uh, you have not only the leaders, which in this case is are Priscilla and Phoebe being mentioned, but also all the other people. So sometimes the people attached to them. So Aquila is also mentioned. Mm -hmm. And later we'll see some of the other women that are also prominent within the church, but maybe not as prominent as their husbands, um, the slaves in different households. Everyone is getting mentioned. Everyone gets a shout out. You get a shout out. You get a shout out. Yep. And that's unusual again. Yep. Like Very. It's, it's supposed to be only the patrons and the leaders that are getting the... Or if you just want to go to the age world, you don't even talk to the women. You talk to the head of the household, oh, yeah. which is a guy. Uh, heads of households could be women. Could be, but in most... Yes, in the ancient world. In the ancient world, that's true. But most letters were written to the men. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yeah, yep. but again, like as we covered earlier, uh, house heads of households were oftentimes women because this is more of a managerial role of how running the actual household. Right. So it, it gets... It's a little... Again, these terms don't quite mean the same thing now to us as they did then, even in terms of leadership roles. Hmm. Anyway, um, Priscilla is also named as a colleague of Paul, as Nick mentioned. Um, I think that's in 2 Timothy 4, 19 as well. A uh, fellow worker. So again, this is this idea of being a fellow worker or co-worker is, 
I guess think of the connotation here. Um, Paul has a preaching, a vibrant preaching ministry. Um, it would be if you had a CEO introducing his colleague to you or coworker, you wouldn't think, oh yes, this is definitely his subordinate. Yeah, it's, no. it's yeah, it's a language of it's an inclusive way of speaking of fellow actors. Yeah, like I, I just think in terms of my own job, uh, my head of department, it would be very unusual in my mind for him to be introducing me and saying, "Oh yes, and here is my coworker Allison or my colleague Allison." I'd be like, "Whoa, that's a little interesting." Yeah. Because uh, he's head of the department, and I am right now a transfer evaluator. I'm nothing special. Let's put it that way in terms of position. So he's saying this person's on par with who I am. Yeah. And also suggests, too, just that they're, they've are they been continually acting and doing and participating in what Paul is doing. Yes. So Paul, I mean, he could have said, Aquila, my coworker, and his wife. There's very easy ways of saying these yeah. sorts of things. And he does stuff like that later in the yeah letter which we'll come into and recognizing people for the legitimate place and contributions they have even if they're not necessarily the leaders the single leader of a church yeah like he's going through everyone um something else to point out as well um this person risked their life for paul Hmm. um and jewett implies paul jewett in his commentary implies that they must have had social clout to do this. Hmm. Um, this is basically them rescuing Paul from a very dangerous situation, possibly decapitation as a citizen. Hmm. Um, so that's pretty significant. Yeah, and, and also, too, it's it's not only Paul who's thankful, but their renown goes beyond all the assemblies in among the Gentiles or the nations and stuff like that. So it's not as if Paul's the only one who knows of their accomplishments. This is a power couple. They probably have a killer podcast, too, if you, know, if you want to think about it like that. <laughs> Going back to the spiritual formation part. There we go. Humility for next time. Yes. <laughs> All right. Nick, um, I think you have one that you wanted to do. Yes, we've got... There's just there's some of the most vexing questions in this whole debate. Uh, are these just kind of little words or phrases Paul used? I mean, these are ad hoc epistles. It's, you know, stuff like that. He's probably right from prison, no light and limited resources. So it's just kind of shocking just what he'll say about women or just the words he uses. And so, for example, in Rome 16, he's not responding to questions concerning like sexual misconduct, like 1 Corinthians 11 and other texts. This is positive. This is a positive vision. So he's not having to correct anyone, which is really interesting. And so you get this image of, for example, Mary or even all these other women and men sitting in a cramped hot house. You can hear the clatter, you know, clattering of swords outside from Roman soldiers. Maybe this is the entire household or the entire church meeting in this one house. Hmm. And so uh, these women are clearly of a subordinate status, whether stated or unstated in the Roman world. Women in Rome had some status, but not to the extent that their male peers did. And so when they hear Paul say, give my respect in greeting Mary, imagine Mary hearing that. Because it's not as if, you know, we're, you know, it's like, it's not just a greeting. It's, I'm acknowledging your personhood yep. by using your name. It's commendation, too. Again, yep. this is a world of status. Yep. Uh, some cultures are a lot more uh, explicit and overt about status swapping. I yep. think we have those kinds of markers in the U.S., but it's not as prominent as in some countries. Right. This is very much a context where status is constantly overtly exchanged by gifts by yep. esteem by words by patronage and clients. especially in yep. a letter Ooh, oh letter. yes and so and this is paul's never been to rome or at least by the founding of this church and so the fact that he's heard these people's names all these names mm. 
and he's commending them for what they've done means that these women are known throughout the Pauline churches, probably. It's not as if they're excluded to or uh, restricted to Rome. And you don't greet subordinates in this way. You greet people who have a similar quality of you. And so what this means is that the actions of Mary have echoed throughout the ancient world, and Paul knows enough about Mary to know that she is doing these things. Yes. And so he uses this great verb, this verb of, of toiling or of working hard. Uh, it's, it's, uh, and so he uses this in relation to his own work in Galatians 4 and Colossians 1 and Philippians 2. And he says people that within the church should yield themselves or submit to all who are co-workers and to the ones who tire, same verb here, in labor. And so I'll read the verse real quick because I just realized I didn't read it. Verse uh, 16.5. Uh, Greet Mary who has done great work for us or who has, yeah, great work for us. And so this specific verb Kopaio is almost always in Paul used in reference to work done for the gospel proclamation. And so in the gospels, it's used in different ways, but in Paul, it's a very different context. And so uh, these women are actively participating in these churches, and Paul doesn't fly off the handle about some nebulous universal principle of so-called male headship, which means <laughs> Paul's care is not about women. It's about the proclamation of the gospel, and women are intrinsic to that mission mm -hmm. here. And so the whole language of greet with respect Mary who has tirelessly done great work. It's an adjective, this great or a lot of work. And so it's not as if this is someone who's handing out cookies or anything <laughs> like that. This is someone who's done uh, just incredible things with the gifts that God has given her. And so for Paul, there's, it's, it'd be really weird. It's almost kind of shameful. It's like, greet this, this woman, this, this, this subordinate, all these sorts of things. And he treats her like she's on the same level as him. You know, and, I'm, I, I hate to say this, like, I'm re I'm recalling something horrible that I heard. It was just really sad. I was starting a, uh, it, I think I was just going through the spiritual gifts, and I ran into this um, elderly woman, hmm. um, she, maybe in her late 80s, hmm. and she was so excited about this workshop because she had recently been praised by her pastor um, for her her cooking. And this person had never been praised in a church context for her gifts. Hmm. And I just, it, it hurt me to my core because not, not only had she never been praised in her context according to her gifts, but it ended up being her ability to cook. Hmm. And this, again, this, this woman, I, I knew, I knew this woman was actually quite active in her church doing all sorts of things. Hmm. And yet this is... The thing that touched her heart was this little recognition for her cooking. I don't know. It it's it's kind of a, a mixture of joy. I'm happy that she got recognized, you know, for that because I mean, I, we Nick and I love to eat. Frankly. That's true. Yeah. And that's a that's a that is a big thing, and it takes time. Creativity. It really does. Yeah. It takes time and creativity. Time, creativity. It's a sign of hospitality, and it's I think a great sign of love. But the fact that this woman also did so much other so many other things and never got recognized. Put and, that as a downer. <laughs> and so uh, I want to correct something. It's for you. It's not for us, It's although it's equivalent. But Paul, it's for you specifically, if I'm going to be accurate. And so, yeah, just this, this idea of this woman just being commended for what she's done by name mm. is just absolutely striking. It's an affirmation of her personhood, of her gifts that God has given to her. Her husband's not mentioned or she's not mentioned as all these other things. So it's she's a standalone person. Maybe her husband wasn't a Christian. And she has to be that witness to him as as a, as a leader. 
and giving him the gift of Christ. You know, maybe, you know, we, we don't know. Maybe she's a slave. We, we don't know. But the fact that she is greeted in the exact same grammatical form throughout the passage as everyone else's shows Paul's just doesn't really care about her social status mm-hmm. because she is in Christ and she has worked with Christ and that's the status he bestows upon her. It's a great sign of respect. It's would that the men of the church respected women like this mm. with just lavish praise and anyway. Yes. So that that's Mary in verse six. Additionally, you get this same sort of language used elsewhere. The same verb uh, appears in verse 12 of Romans 16 uh, and greet uh, Tryphena and Tryphosa or greet with respect Tryphena and Tryphosa. These women who work hard in the Lord, same grammatical form and or same same verb and the tense form of the verb is a participle which kind of indicates their continual work so paul it's not paul that that paul expects oh yeah you're working but now that you've come under male headship you don't need to do that Mm -hmm. anymore it's continual i expect you to keep working in what you're doing keep contributing to the kingdom and so this is all grounded in the sphere of being in the lord and so it's not it's not uh, housework, you know, or you know, domestic, you know, uh, abilities or responsibilities. It's Lord work. It's Jesus work. Whatever that entails, that's what it is, and that is work done in the calling of Christ. And we don't really know much about else about these women except that they should be known by their actions for Christ and for the work of the Church of Rome. The fact again that no husband or man is mentioned with them or above them indicates they're freestanding as fellow co co laborers with Christ or in Christ. And similarly, Persis is described as the beloved one. Uh, and so I'll read the verse again. Uh, greet my friend, uh, greet, I don't like this, my dear friend Persis, and I don't like that, it's the NIV. Uh, <laughs> greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who worked hard in the Lord, and I think that's pretty accurate. Greet my dear friend Persis, or Persis the beloved, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. And throughout this passage, uh, uh, she's described as the beloved one, which indicates kind of a special affection. Uh, it's an adjective that is used to describe the whole church sometimes, you know, in Romans 1-7, but it's not used with discrimination, any specific gender, you know, so a man can be called the beloved, a woman's called the beloved, the church is called the beloved, but it's not as if Paul uses it to every single person, although he probably thinks that way. Uh, the fact that he uses it for her specifically here is, it's not that it's an honorific title, but it kind of is you know, the, the beloved person. It's an adjective that's used of Christ as well. And so the only ones, but what's interesting here is the only ones in Romans who are granted this specific adjective, polos, great or much, are the women. Phoebe in verse 2, Mary, pardon me, in verse 6, and Persis here. This, of course, that doesn't suggest that men cannot do great works or work tirelessly for Christ, you know, perish the thought. But it is compelling evidence that suggests that Paul Press viewed these women as having done exceptional difficult, great work in the gospel for the Roman church. And so Paul uses other language elsewhere for the men uh, and the women, but here it just, it's, it's great or just a ton of things these women have done for the church. And so the fact that they're named and all these sorts of things shows that just this whole idea of, oh yeah, this, this, you know, we have one text in 1 Timothy 2 to just completely flatten everything out here as some kind of this nebulous principle. You'd think Paul, if he had that principle in mind, it would come out here. You know, it's like, you've done great work, but don't forget to submit to the, you know, the male leaders and stuff like that, which he could have done. But the fact that he doesn't, he's just like, no, great work. It's unqualified. And it's just unspecified. You, you get this sense in Paul that there's no kind of male headship model that he's kind of got running through the back of his mind as, as an ecclesiological like axiom. In fact, it's whoever does this great work for the church, period, just flat out. And so... Uh, yeah, these are exceptional women, and they've done just exceptional work. All right, next up, we have Yodia and Syntyche. Uh, so 
if you haven't realized by now, we're going to go for a while. Yeah. There's about 14 that we're going to cover. Yep. Total. So, actually, more than that, because we've grouped some together. So, <laughs> wow. We had, okay. to, we had to get them all in. Lots of hellos, again. And actually, this one I'm going to pull from Philippians 4, 2-3. So, let me go ahead and read this one. I urge Yodia and Syntyche, and I urge Syntyche to come to an agreement in the Lord. Yes, and I'm also asking you, loyal friend, to help these women who have struggled together with me in the ministry of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the scroll of life. Hmm. So again, we've got co-workers, and interestingly, we've got a uh, very special name here, Clement. This is someone that's known by the early church to have been way up there. So hmm. some people say that he was con- consecrated by St. Peter. Um, he's supposed to be a basically a bishop, an early bishop in the Church of Rome. Now, Yuri and Syntyche are basically named alongside of this very prominent man, Clement and Paul, as co-workers. And again, you'll remember what I said before in terms of if you can think of the difference in terms of uh, if a head of department introduces someone as a co-worker or a peer versus someone that they've kind of treated as a subordinate, even politely. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, you know, this is Allison. She does great work, you know, as a transfer evaluator <laughs> versus, ah, yes, here's my colleague, so-and-so. Yeah. Now, in this context, they're not getting along and this is causing problems. So not all examples are always positive, but mm. it seems he has a very positive evaluation of these two female leaders, but sees that their conflict is going to cause problems for the gospel. And hence, he's bringing in another person to try to help resolve everything. The mediatorship, yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because you'd think if these were not prominent people, he, of course, wouldn't name them by name. But also this idea of why would he even need... Like, low-level people don't usually do much and can't really cause that much of a kerfuffle. That's true, too. Yeah, why why name these, like, these people from a random nowhere if there's no... I mean, you'll have Paul naming people that have very bizarre sins that are just turning everything upside down. Right. And that are well-known. But there's no specific thing that's named here. It just kind of... It, it's almost assumed, like, oh, you know what that controversy was yeah, over. Y'all know what's up. Yeah, like, for example, Paul doesn't name the man who's having an incestuous relationship with his stepmother in 1 Corinthians 5. Possibly not to shame him, but possibly because he's no longer in the church. And it's one and of those maybe things... maybe because everyone knows. Yeah, everyone knows. And so the fact that he names these women here is a, is another way of kind of getting at that point. It's you're, They're of so much significant prominence. And the fact that he says, contended with. It's kind of a fighting word. They contended with me. And so Yeah, so he's... Yeah. I mean, he's elevating elevating them even though he's saying this is a real problem <laughs> yeah i mean they have such significant influence that their contention is probably damaging to the church and so it, it illustrates the point we've been making that paul doesn't tell them oh you need to come under the authority of a male headship or mm-hmm. a male hierarchy here what you need to do is settle this peacefully as sisters. oh yeah we'd have we wouldn't have this problem with disagreement and this cat fighting if it was a man in charge nope nope he does. It does appear he's sending a man to help kind of <laughs> mediate between these two leaders, but it's not so much to take over because they're failures as because they're women. Or well, it like includes that. even an equal, equalizing phrase whose names all I'm assuming all of them who all their names are written in the scroll of life or the book of life, and so again, their status 
as co-workers, as contenders, are together in the Book of Life. So it's not as if these women are excluded from the kingdom somehow just because of this. Mm -hmm. In fact, they're obviously included. All right, so next interesting one is actually, we don't have her name. And so some of these people, I don't know, some of them, I think everyone knows who they are. Hmm. Some of them, maybe even Paul doesn't know who they are. I think this one... You can definitely say he knows who it is, but hmm. this is the in the letter known as the mother of Rufus. And, and what verse? Where? Um, okay, so I'll read it. Say hello to Rufus, who is an outstanding believer along with his mother and mine. Ooh, interesting. Interesting. That's Romans 16, 13. Yep. And so we see here that Paul has a very high view of motherhood. And hmm. not just here. I mean, Paul himself even connects motherhood to his own apostolic ministry. And so, and I think you can check out, I think it's in Galatians and 1 Corinthians 3, um, where Paul will liken himself to a mother in his apostolic role. Hmm. Um, so check, yeah, check that out. I also discuss it a bit in the paper that I read from uh, Duke and Eve Christology, and yeah. the CATA conference. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's, this is not just a, oh yes, you know, this person baked me cookies and did all this cool stuff. He's essentially giving this woman credit behind her son's outstanding achievement as mm -hmm. a believer. And even credits her as his own, in a sense, his own mother. Yeah. So probably this had, there might be a little bit of a patron relationship here that's possible. Um, at the very least, there's a lot of uh, hospitality, which is held in very high regard hmm. in this ancient world. Um, something interesting about this name, I don't know, just for fun. So Rufus is oftentimes given to redheads. <laughs> so I can think of a certain professor in Australia that might actually fit. Yeah, you know, it's this this dude in What's his name? Australia. I forget. Like he, that guy who used to troll us all the time. The last name Falcon or something like that. Raven. I forget. Raven. Yeah, yeah definitely yeah. Raven. Yeah, definitely Raven. Yes. Yeah, definitely Raven. So. Raven. Raven. <laughs> Shout out to Trevor there. Yep. Um, but yeah, so another interesting tidbit about uh, this woman. Um, her husband was probably the person that carried the cross of Christ. Wait, what? Yeah. Okay. So I, right, I think right. if I remember, this is what I read in Jewett, that in Mark fifteen twenty one. All right, Mark fifteen twenty one. Simon, a man from Cyrene, Alexander and Rufus's father, was coming in, you know, Alexander and Rufus's father, was coming in from the countryside. They forced him to carry his cross. So Interesting. Yeah, so this uh, the significance here is this man was connected to the historical Jesus. So this is pretty far up there in the hierarchy of yeah, that's pretty church important. relationships. And again, these aren't... These are small communities, so everyone yeah. kind of knows everyone. Hmm. And he's giving the mother credit for the spiritual growth of her son. Yeah. Basically. Hmm. And that is part of a mother's role as a mother. It's not just helping a child be well-formed um, as a person by world standards, but a well-formed person in the character of Christ. Hmm. And that's a very high calling. And as we saw earlier with our discussion on spiritual formation, this is this gets into the core of who we are and our vocational calling to love God and love others and be formed into the image of Christ. So credit for mothers. Yeah, and it just shows that a lot of women in the Gospels, like one who's maybe going to be talked about next week, uh, ended up in Rome doing ministry. So it's, it's just interesting to see all these kind of familiar faces, which means Paul may have known a lot of these people 
in the Gospels. And it's just interesting to see the network connections that kind of happen here. Yeah, and here's a, another one we'll look at. Uh, we have Eunice and, Lo- and Lois, hmm. uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother. Ooh. So the, we've got the two letters to Timothy, and you can find them in 2 Timothy 1.5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. Again, we have that Pauline language of being in, hmm. in faith, or probably being in Christ. And it's specifically a sincere faith that's being contrasted with the theme of the false teaching. Hmm. So Timothy's able to stand his ground in this very hostile context to the gospel and all that it stands for. Uh, and Paul is basing the grounding of his thanksgiving in terms of the work that of the people that came before him. So this is the legacy. And so oftentimes, again, we, we gravitate towards the one that made, showed up as a blip, a splash on our radar historically, and we don't look at all the work that came before. I even think of in terms of um, the Wesley brothers, uh, we, Susanna. Yeah, Susanna Wesley. Yeah. Um, I mean, this was a woman that had a very developed theology that she taught her sons. And she was basically leading church, what I'm going to call church, in her house. Hmm. And again, people don't um, remember Susanna as well. Yeah. But they remember her sons. Yep. And the, the fact of the matter is we're all a link in the chain in each other's spiritual formation. Or, hmm. I mean, sometimes, frankly, sometimes we can be a link in the chain for people's destruction too Hmm. in ways that we didn't intend. Yeah. Um, And so we need to keep that in mind that we're all so interconnected. But um, something else I would like to bring up, and this goes back to a good friend of, a good friend of mine, a grandmother again, uh, her, when when I knew her, son, uh, he wasn't very strong in the faith. Um, and I hear later kind of fell away. And his grandmother um, was the type of woman <laughs> that liked to bust out the commentaries. She liked to uh, study Greek and Hebrew with me. And she she was not ever considered a leader in the church. They actually quite hated her. Hmm. Uh, always thought of her as this entitled woman who thought she was better than everyone. She was a very quiet, soft-spoken grandmother who just happened to know so much about scripture and study it and love the Lord so, so richly. And she's the one that led her grandson back to the faith and her grandson ended up becoming a leader in the church. So again, I think this is a, one of those things where, yes, the leaders are mentioned, but Paul's also recognizing those that stand behind the leader because in Mm -hmm. Christ, we're all on equal footing. Yeah. And I want to also add that for Timothy, um, this basis that he had in his uh, gr- his mother and his grandmother, not his uh, not his father, um, but it's supposed to be a foundation for uh, not just where he is today, but where he's going to go in the future. And so, hmm. in verse seven, uh, Paul reminds him: "For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline." Hmm. All right, Nick. So there's another interesting tidbit in this whole letter that we were going to cover as well. Why don't you go ahead and take us there? What's interesting is how Paul uses language like how is commonly translated brothers and sisters. It's the Greek word Adelphoi. I think we've covered it a little bit, 
But what's important here is you have a kind of an important hermeneutical clue in how Paul uses this word. Wait, so how, okay, so if we were just to go woodenly by the lexical uh, form. Or the ESV. If the yeah. ESV were to translate this, it'd be probably brothers, maybe a footnote that says brothers and sisters. And so it's, 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 uh, if you, it's not even wooden, it's literalistically. So if you were to, it's one of those things, I think, that if you were to refer to your actual brother, you'd say um, Delphos. Yep. And sister, you'd use a different term. Adelphi, yeah. the way it's being used here functionally, it's a bit different. And this is where the, again, the terms have meaning according to use. Mm -hmm. And so you get this kind of thing where it can mean a, a male brother. It can also be used in, in, a, in a feminine way for sisters, as, as we'll see later. But when it's used in, to a mixed congregation of people that Paul has been greeting, male and male and female, when it's used in the plural form, it's most often, it refers to brothers and sisters. And so an important hermeneutical... And here we have a mix. Yes, exactly. And every church is mixed. Every church that Paul speaks to has has women there. Yeah, hence all Adelphoi. Uh, brothers and sisters, All yes. brothers. Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe that can get into some of the interesting power dynamics too. Yeah. Yeah. And, but we have a kind of an important hermeneutical clue uh, elsewhere when Paul uses this word uh, in 1 Corinthians 15.6. The text reads, after he, that is Jesus, appeared to over 500 Adelphoi, uh, brothers and sisters at once, most of whom still remain, that is, they're still alive, but some have fallen asleep, i.e. they've died. Uh, one can safely infer that the gospel of the risen Jesus was witnessed by both men and women, if you read the gospels, since Paul does not use an androcentric term like man on air in that text. Thus, when Paul uses this kinship language in Romans 16, uh, 16, uh, let me pull up the reference here just so I get it right, 16, I think it's 16, 16, 16, 17. Uh, so as a conclusion of what he said before. So when he uses this kind of kinship language, we're supposed to interpret these people, potentially in Romans 16 and elsewhere, uh, as witnesses to Jesus in his post-resurrection state, specifically in 1 Corinthians 15, without any reference to gender. You read the Gospel of Luke, we see this. We read the Gospel of Mark, we see this. These are not merely fellow believers. We would say these Adelphoi, perhaps, are perhaps part of the cloud of witnesses among the Christian people Christians call family. And so if one wants to play Paul as kind of the pinnacle apostle card and use him to exclude women from leadership roles, one has to wrestle kind of with Paul's own self-designation here in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, the least of the apostles. And this will kind of maybe get into the, the, the woman who shall not be named now that will be discussed in the next mm -hmm. episode. Paul's witness may echo throughout the centuries, but it's based off the unseen and unknown women he encouraged and welcomed in leadership alongside him, as well as the unnamed women in the Gospels and the unnamed women in church history as well. So when Paul greets various people in Romans 16, he includes unnamed, unnamed people also, those who are with you, the brothers and sisters who are with you as well in Romans 16, 14. And so this is a way of kind of bridging the gap between the witnesses of Jesus, the apostles, the missionaries, the people who were sent out. He may not know them by name. He doesn't know probably the, all 500 people's name, but it's a way of communicating to them that the cloud of witnesses of the who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus does not exclude women from this. And so when we talk about apostleship or other such titular forms of the word, we need to remember who exactly saw Jesus and what this means. Uh, yeah, that's basically all I want to say on Adelphos. It does not exclude women. In fact, when Paul uses it here, even in a mixed context we know of, it includes brothers and sisters. And so yeah. the people unnamed who have had an epic witness in the faith that he just doesn't know the name of, maybe. Here's something interesting to think of, too, um, in terms of even how we should understand our relationship with each other. 
um, whether as uh, co-workers or as, um, and we all are co-workers of the gospel, um, just fellow believers, really. Um, this isn't, sometimes we think of gendered relationships in terms of hierarchy, like these are my brothers is oftentimes the case. Yeah. Um, and in a sense, we're supposed to think of women as our brothers too. So I want to just put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, and that implies kind of a, maybe a deep level of kinship in Christ and... You don't get to treat them differently because they're your sister. Yeah. 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 Like these are my brothers. Yeah. And it just indicates us uh, the same sort of status. It's to call, yeah. And so it's kind of like, you know, telling a guy, yeah, you're part of the bride of Christ. We, the guy doesn't immediately go, ugh. Well, he might, I don't know. He might. I, I didn't. I was like, oh, I'm involved in the cloud of witnesses that is the church that's involved in mission and apostleship and kindness and goodness and being in Christ. Oh, okay. And women included in that too? Okay, cool. We're all one. To, we're all the bride of Christ. Okay, it all just made sense as a familial kind of ecclesiocentric method of how we view each other and so yeah so when you i don't know get into your groups and at church just as we normally will gravitate towards people um and you start talking shop with the other dudes uh make sure you have all your brothers there mm -hmm. which may be female yep because in pauline in the pauline world there's quite a bit more inclusivity in terms of the uh, family language yep. uh women are also firstborn sons and paul's also a mother yep. so here it is yep Next. And so that brings us to two specific women. Uh, you have Nympha in Colossians 4 and Chloe in 1 Corinthians 1. And so I'll, use, I'll go with uh, Chloe first. Uh, it's, it's, you only have three words kind of dedicated to her, but it may be the reason we have the epistle to 1 Corinthians, at least in the present form we have it now. And so uh, I'll read the text. All right, according to the NIV, my brothers and sisters, huh, they got that right. So my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Uh, actually, good translation. I like it. And so uh, it's it's just three words, some of Chloe's household, uh, just hupa, tone, cloace in the Greek. And so you have kind of this, the hupa plus a genitive case of the plural article tone. And so uh, hupa meaning by, probably, or from, maybe, in, in some sort of sense. The article is plural, so it's referring to some, probably people, of Chloe. We don't know if they're slaves we don't know if they're people of her household we don't know if people who meet in her house church and so the text doesn't really tell us who these people are and so but whatever it is given the difficulty and cost of sending people probably with documentation to paul wherever paul is when he's writing corinthians suggests her prominence in the corinthian christian community but we're not really told much about her beyond that but it is an interesting kind of thing that it's people from a woman's household who told paul of all the crazy stuff that's going on in corinth and paul then writes first corinthians probably to them and then you have uh, nympha and colossians uh, 4 15 which talks about give my respect and greeting same verbal idea uh the brothers and sisters in laodicea and nympha and the church that meets in her house Whoever reads the epistle, probably of Colossians, is likely doing so under Nympha's roof. And so, as the noun for house is used in Colossians only in this verse, and it's a woman's house. The fact that you don't have a husband or a man is not mentioned as a householder illustrates probably that she's either single, or Paul believed in the equality of husbands and wives, so 
He doesn't need to mention the husband, maybe. Nympha was single and perhaps wealthy, or Paul just didn't see it necessary to do so, given that her prominence as a or the household leader in Colossae. And so, again, you, it's these kind of little throwaway little lines that we just kind of, oh, yeah, and she's a member. But preaching on this verse would be quite powerful, I think, for people mm. to do. And just taking the time to actually recognize who this woman was and the fact that 2,000 years later we're reading a commendation of this woman who probably gave of her own resources mm. freely to empower people in the church for the gospel. Wow. And so you get this sense in which uh, this woman is not a subordinate member or a person who's, you know, some mere thing. She's a necessity for the gospel in Colossae. You do not have Colossians or even maybe Philemon, the epistle to Philemon, the greatest epistle in the New Testament, if you don't have this woman. And so again, when we talk, when we kind of capitulate and go to this one verse in 1 Timothy that's been really poorly translated and worked with, you automatically begin to flatten everything out and the the cloud of female witnesses in scripture gets undermined. And so these two women, just these little throwaway, this one word here, these three words here, is basically Paul's way of saying women matter in the gospel, and to exclude them is to essentially undermine the witness that the gospel had. And so history matters for our interpretation, and these two women are no exception to that. All right, so I'll finish up my little spiel with two Uh, So remember, Paul's greeting everybody. Everyone gets a greeting. Hooray! Um, all of them, all the saints who are with them. So, all right. He just lists a bunch of people. Some of them he doesn't know the name of. Some of them he does. So here, here, here's one. Yay. Julia, Romans 16, 15. Uh, this is a name that's oftentimes given to slaves. Um, sometimes they're, free, they're people that are got their freedom later um, from the Julian household. Hmm. But this person was also someone that Paul wanted to net mention part of a group of five leaders. She might be possibly related to the male before, but because of the Kai, who knows? Maybe a husband and wife team again? Um, Yeah, or maybe, and this time the husband's name first. So she's significant in some way, though. Yep. We just don't know because... He doesn't say anything. Doesn't say. And then there is the sister of Nereos. (laughs) Uh, this actually, this name is I think God of the Ocean. Oh gosh, that's awesome! But yeah, also a slave name, I believe. Um, hmm. And again, uh, with the sister, whoever this is, um, Paul doesn't probably doesn't know who this is, but she's significant in some way because he's heard of it. Like, oh yeah, it's that guy's sister. I've heard great things about what she's done. Yeah, there's like five of them, and it was the sister of that one person. She's prominent enough to be mentioned. Like, he may have have forgotten her name, but he still had to put her in there. Oh, yeah. He has to put everyone in there. Yep. Everyone. Everyone gets to go in. Everyone gets a car. And, yeah, right. Um, But, yeah, uh, I think one of the commentaries mentioned that this is, you basically, in this little part, you have at least two-fifths of the female leaders of this one area, or two-fifths of the leadership in this area are female. Hmm. So... Yeah, so yeah, everyone gets a mention, and including, Nick, go ahead and finish us off. All right, and this is the final woman we'll be talking about, and it's Aphia in Philemon 1-2. And it's the only explicit epistle in the New Testament that directly addresses a woman in the introduction. And so, although there may be an additional reference to a chosen female lord and her children in Second John, but... That, that'll just take way too long to go into. Uh, and so... Nick has a really good paper out on this. Yeah, well, I'll link it. I published it in Priscilla Papers a year or two ago. Didn't uh, Scott McKnight put you in a footnote? Yeah, Scott. If you look at Scott That's McKnight's nice. new commentary on Philemon, I'm quoted, I think, twice in there. So thank you, Dr. McKnight. Right. That's wonderful. That was very nice of him. Yep. All right. And so uh, I... 
I could just translate this myself. Scott McKnight is in practice very egalitarian yep. and kind. <laughs> nice guy too. I mean, he took the time to read my article when it was a piece of garbage and then he gave ideas and it was I great. I actually got to serve him communion once. Oh really? Oh, that's when you were at Ted's? Yeah. Okay. So random story while Nick finds this. Yes. Um, I was at Ted's going to Church of the Redeemer hmm. and they mentioned a Scott McKnight book in passing and I was like, oh yeah, that's cool. So I'm up there serving communion. And this guy comes up, and I just, like, stop. My mouth, like, drops open. I was like, this guy looks familiar. Then I look at his name tag, it says Scott. And I'm like, hmm, I don't know. My, my brain was, like, trying to put two pieces together, but didn't <laughs> quite work. And so I was just like, oh, whatever. So he comes and goes, and it started bothering me for the whole day. I'm like, was that person? No. That wasn't Scott McKnight, was it? It's like a celebrity moment. It's like, did I just see the rock walk through here? <laughs> yeah, I just it, it just bothered me because I'll get fixated on things and problem solve. I'm like, he was mentioned in passing. Does, is there any connection? My brain my, my brain remembered that piece and said it's significant somehow. I know it is. <laughs> and yeah, it, it, yeah, it was him. And I don't know. I didn't go up to him because I think he. I don't know. I wanted to give him space. Yeah. So whatever. Anyway, that was my... Nothing worse than fanboying or girling in, uh, in church, yeah. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah, and so I'll, I'll read verses 1 to 3 of Philemon just to give a little bit of context. There's not a lot to say about her. Well, there's plenty to say, but I, I won't bore you guys. There's a whole paper, so if you want to yes. look it up. Yes, uh, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, the brother, uh, to Philemon, our dear friend, or the beloved, and fellow worker, our fellow worker, and to Aphia... The uh, they, call, they say it the sister. It's not there. To Aphia the beloved, the sis, They say the beloved. To Aphia the sister and Archippus the fellow soldier or our fellow soldier and to the church that meets in your home. So again, already we see household. We don't quite know whose household this is. It's kind of difficult to tell. Could be Philemon. Could be Aphia. Could be Archippus. Could be all three. Could they could be a family? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Aphia's uh, called the sister. She's not called the wife. And so that probably rules out any notion of her being either a gentleman's husband. Uh, she's called the sister, uh, Adelphi, in similar way that Phoebe is. So it's not as if this is necessarily... So like the, like, kind of like the, de- the deacon? Sort of like that. It's, it's hard to tell if this is yeah. it's a familial title. It could be a titular kind of thing. So it could be like he keeps calling people siblings. Yeah. Um, okay, so even like Phoebe. It could be like that or it could actually be a sibling. It's very confusing in the household economy of God. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a blurring in this sort of thing. So if Paul's most preferred term for people is a Delphoi mm. and not um, apostle or, or deacon. Know, or individually sister. or yeah. yeah. And so he almost always offers for familial terms over some sort of kind of dry term mm. like uh, elder or something like that. It's very rare comparatively. And so, you know. He likes mutual terms. He yes. really does. Yep. And so grace to you, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so... The question is, what function does it serve to actually mention a woman here? Like, what, why? why? Why is she mentioned? And without getting too specific in it, although I will get very specific, <laughs> is I think, and this is disputed, every, every aspect of Philemon is disputed. But what I think has happened here is this, just to give some context. Onesimus has sent, or Philemon has sent Onesimus to Paul to be basically uh, Paul's slave. And so it's an extent, it's somatic synecdoche. Onesimus represents Philemon's body. So he sends his body, which is what slaves were called in the ancient world, their property, they were called body, it's Soma. He sent his body to him. And so Paul meets him, uh, they get along great, and he says he became my child. He, you know, and this sort of, it's it's a very intimate 
it's a very intimate epistle. It's one of the best epistles you'll ever read if you love, you know, you're, you know, and all these sorts of things. You've re refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people, as he says to Philemon. So Philemon is not a nobody. And so basically what happens is when Paul sends him back, the question is, how is Paul sending him back? Paul sends him back as his own body, his own heart, his splank, and all these sorts of technical terms. And what you have, the question is this, is Aphia being mentioned to apply additional pressure in the household mm. for Philemon to manumit oh, Onesimus? Yeah. And that's the biggest question is, is this a, a plea for manumission or is it merely one man sending a slave back to his master? And that's how it's been traditionally interpreted in terms of the transatlantic slave trade. I think it's far more complex than that. And I think the naming of specific people all throughout this little epistle, especially at the end, means a lot of people are watching Philemon see what he does. And if he is no exception. What is Philemon going to do with Paul's heart, his son, yep. his, <laughs> his everything? Yep. So. So you have the matron of the house, you have and all these things. And this guy owes Paul. Yep. This guy owes Paul. And it ends with this. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I'm coming back. <laughs> I'm coming to see you. And it'd be very awkward if Onesimus answered the door in chains. Ooh. And so all this to say, Aphia being mentioned means she had enough status and clout to do whatever Paul wanted Philemon to do. And so you have this sphere of influence and rhetoric that basically says Aphia's central to this dispute, whatever it is, and to exclude her from this means we have to exclude essentially any sort of influence a woman of power would have had in the ancient world. And the fact that Paul includes her means she had power. Yep. And that's all that matters here. We could debate this for days, but that's what it is. This woman has power and he expects her to use it whatever in whatever Onesimus needs, she will help him with. Yeah. And I mean, again, it's one of those things where sometimes God puts us in positions where hmm. we can do a lot of good. Um, sometimes we see people around us being exploited, and if you're in that position where you can speak up and say something, mm -hmm. guess what? God's called you to do it. Yep. And the question is, what are we going to do? Here, um, Paul's perhaps enlisting someone who can do something about uh, this man that's a slave, um, and will she? What, what is she going to do? He's called her out. What, what is she going to do? Yeah, what Paul basically says is no longer as a slave, but beyond a slave. And what Paul does with this somatic imagery is to sum up, hey, he has taken the form of a slave by appealing to Onesimus or to Philemon as himself, as Onesimus represents him and uh, he represents Onesimus. Mm -hmm. So there's a symbiotic kind of relationship here. And Aphia's inclusion in this means she knows what Paul's doing. And Paul's identification with Onesimus means she has to identify with Onesimus too. Yes. Which means you've got this complete flattening of any sort of abuse. The diffusion of power is built on the predication that she has the power to tell Philemon what he's doing is wrong. If he chooses to take him back and beat him or kill him, he could do that. Yeah. And so again, in taking the form of a slave as we are supposed to do, in, in thinking the mind of Christ here, just in general, it's a strong command for ethical... Uh, empathy with other people, especially people who are suffering, people who are being oppressed. And there's great power in Paul naming men and women together as agents of Christ in the world who are called to be, essentially we're called to be peacemakers. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're minister, we are all ministers of the gospel and we're called to be agents of God's peace. We're, uh, there's great, justice. there's great power in the word of God. And when male and female are represented together as the image of God, you're unstoppable as a church. There's a, um, Taze uh, prayer, I think, mm. slash song that we used to actually at Church of the Redeemer sing, and I, I think I put it up on Twitter too. Um, it's uh, the kingdom of God is justice and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Come, mm. Lord, and open up, 
in us the the, the gates of your kingdom. Hmm. There it is. <laughs> there it is. And so, in summation, what is a biblical theology of what we've talked about? What is a summation of what we've talked about here, love? Uh, I'd say in in the kingdom of God, um, demonstrated in Christ, we are all uh, on equal playing field. And this is the God that shows no partiality. So in practice, um, we too need to uplift each other and not show, be showing partiality according to whether we have disagreements with people, um, whether or not we're, whether we're slaves, whether we're free. Um, and I think if we're in a high status position, we give, we elevate those that are below our, our uh, social standing. Um, I think if we're on the bottom, hmm. we realize that, no, we're actually in Christ on the top. And because we're, because Christ sees the people that are below the slaves and, you know, the women as hmm. on equal par with the others, I think we can also hold our head up high and say, you may have higher social standing than me, but I am equal to you in the bond of Christ. Because Christ says so. In Christ, you don't get to claim primogenitor perfection over me. And, you know, my, my Savior came down in the form of a human being and took on you know, the role of a slave. And mm -hmm. so now I'm on equal footing with you. My and I can, if you know, even it's, it's Paul posing Peter to the face sometimes, you know. It's, it's saying to the powerful, my God came down and looks like me as a slave in the ancient world. He did not come down as your emperor. He yeah. came down as a suffering slave. Yeah. And that says more to the people. And that's why Christianity exploded because of slaves, women, and children. The yeah. most oppressed in the society found their identity in this crucified, subordinated, destroyed Messiah who yep. was triumphant in his resurrection. And so, and yeah. we can see very clearly that this um, thinking has captured the heart of Paul. Hmm. And he doesn't just talk about, um, the spirit being poured out in the heart um, in the context of suffering and trials, as we discussed in Romans five, he doesn't mm. just talk about it in a theological abstract. He's demonstrating it right now. Look at the people he's greeting. Mm. Look at the people he's giving social capital to not just people that are actual leaders like him, but everyone. Yeah. So yeah, there's a generosity here. Yes. Christ kind of breeds uh, ecclesiological generosity. And so, yeah, so what's coming up for next week, Allison? Yeah, I, it's kind of like we forgot the an individual that maybe has so much needless controversy attached to her, and mm. we just conspicuously left her out of this discussion. Oprah. Oprah. We're going to discuss uh, Oprah. Oh, no, we're not. Yeah. No, we're talking about the Apostle Junia next time. Yep. And with all of the controversy. We didn't leave her out because she, she is a she. Yeah. <laughs> and she yes. is in this passage and she is an apostle. We'll talk more about her next week. And time. not an apostle qualified. Oh, not a not apostle in quotes. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Anyway, thank you for listening. We're tired. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Split Frame of Reference podcast. If you've liked what you've heard throughout these now seventeen episodes, give us a five star, honest five star review on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter and shout and out. And check us. out Nick's new podcast. Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> the Synergist podcast spelled sinner as you and I are sinners. Just G-I-S-T. The Synergist podcast. Should be on iTunes by the time I this hear goes it's down. It's the most man-centered podcast out there. The most man-centered theology podcast Ooh. out there. So yes. Yes. And so tongue in cheek. Yep, tongue, tongue in cheek. cheek. So check all that out and uh, follow us on Twitter at Nick Quint and at I think it's Allison Quint. 
and shout out to us and say hi and we'll say hi back and may the peace of Christ be with you. We really will too. Yeah, Can we you say really hi will. to us. We'll say hi to you. We actually will. Yes, we are. We have. We are not verified yet, so we don't have the pretense of ignoring people. So, <laughs> so thank you for listening and Everyone God bless. Yep. Thank you.